What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to this episode of the Hindu Studies Channel, New Books Network. Today we are talking to Dr. Elaine Fisher of Stanford University about her publication, Hindu Pluralism. Dr. Fisher, it's very nice to have you on the program. Thank you, Raj. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Uh, well, uh, I'm uh, currently based at Stanford University uh, and um, my, my interests broadly concern Shaivism in South India. Uh, and uh, as you know, in the, my book, Hindu Pluralism, I've been interested in uh, the relationship between early modern Shaiva communities in South India and other religious communities, looking at you know, the concept that we have about sectarianism in relationship to the history of Hinduism. So you've mentioned a key concept there that's, I think, very important for us to discuss, because when we think of sectarianism, we may perhaps think of it differently in the Hindu world as in other worlds. So can you perhaps tell us what you mean by sectarianism and how you use it in your book? Absolutely. Well, my use of the term, and this is a use that I want to problematize, comes directly out of how the term has been used in scholarship about Hinduism uh, in the recent past and under British colonialism as well. Uh, that is, uh, even now we tend to use this term sectarianism very casually as a synonym for Shaivism and Vaishnavism, or that is any form of theistic Hinduism uh, that has been viewed as differing from, or as a, a breakaway movement from uh, an orthodox Brahminical whole. Uh, so this concept has a number of problems with it, as I've argued. Uh, one is that there's the assumption that sectarian communities, uh, based on our general use of the word sectarianism, uh, somehow involve ideas of violence or schismatic uh, breakaway movements from this orthodox whole. Uh, and the other is a historiographical problem. Uh, and that is that, uh, you know, based on the history of the use of these terms in the sociology of religion, we have the idea that a sect as opposed to a church is a fragment or a protest, a reformation of an original whole assuming that Shaivism and Vaishnavism emerged historically as breakaway movements from a unified Brahminical orthodoxy. Uh, and as I've argued, there are a lot of historical problems with this argument. Yeah. So instead, I want to see the history of Shaivism and Vaishnavism in a very different light. Uh, that is, uh, there's a story to tell about how these religious communities came to define themselves over time in a very different way. And that story is involved with changing ideas about Hinduism as an overarching category, uh, as we see these individual traditions over time developing new arguments that we never saw before about how their teachings are actually the pinnacle of Vedic orthodoxy and the true essential meaning of the Vedas and other Hindu scriptures as a whole. 
And so what I'm hearing then is a sort of 30,000 foot view takeaway concept that maybe folks can relate to is that there's this idea, uh, this common um, conceptualization of sect as a segment of a breakoff point from a, a deviation from a reformation of a mainstream Orthodox religious tradition. Um, various sects of Christianity would probably be most popular in the minds of our, our listeners. But what you're saying is that the idea that Vaishnavism, the devotees of Vishnu, or Shaivism, um, entailing the devotees of Shiva, that those movements are not sects in the same way that there are sects in Christianity insofar as they don't so much break away from an orthodoxy, but somehow inform that orthodoxy. Would that be fair to say? Well, generally, yes. Um, that is, uh, within the context of Hinduism, uh, the use the term sect, you know, as we've received it from classical sociology of religion, from Trouch and Weber and others, doesn't really fit the picture here at all. And it's true that those terms originated within the context of the study of Protestant Christianity. Now, there are also scholars of Protestantism today that may debate whether that accurately reflects the history of Protestantism in Europe, but uh, be that as it may, uh, the point here is that that model does not fit the picture of how communities within Shaivism and Vaishnavism represented themselves in the earlier period, say in the middle of the first millennium, the common era, nor does it represent how that process changed, how they changed their representation uh, in the second millennium when they began increasingly to represent themselves as members of a unity that we might now, now call Hinduism, but also as the most essential, the ultimate representation of that unity. So it seems that in problematizing the idea of sects, sectarian movements about Hinduism, part of what you're driving at or part of what's um, implicated is this very idea of Hinduism as a thing from which there might be a separate sect or deviating sect. So could you say a little bit about this idea of Hinduism and whether or not it's a problematic umbrella to begin with? Uh, certainly. Well, you know, that's a, uh a subject that's been addressed quite uh, significantly you know, in recent scholarship, and for good reason. So certainly we all know uh, at this point that the term Hinduism was not part of uh, the Indian religious worldview uh, before mm. British colonialism. So uh, as a unity, uh, unity, as a doctrinal signifier, so a lot has changed during the colonial period. Of course, that's not to say that the term Hinduism has no meaning. Uh, it's uh, a word that now is... Uh, uh, an important category of identity for millions of Hindus around the world. So, so it's not simply to say that the term is problematic, but uh, the point is to look at how the history of different religious communities, how they've been viewed at different times, you know, has changed significantly. And that is in the pre-colonial period, even though, say, around the 12th and 13th centuries, as uh, Andrew Nicholson has argued, even though we don't have the term Hinduism being used, there is uh, an increasing shift to an idea of unity. That is, that members of certain communities or certain philosophical schools might share something fundamentally in common that might be referred to by terms not like Hinduism, but like Vedika, Vedic, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. And so even in, in modern sort of neoclassic or modern movements, within the Hindu practicing world, you have this idea of Vedic culture, um, Vedic lifestyle, Vedic astrology, even Vedic practices, and this idea of hearkening back to some sort of 
um, unifying force um, through the Vedic corpus, at least in name, um, if not in content. So what, what I want to ask you about, um, it sounds like this sort of attempt to point to or understand a unified Hinduism is necessarily one that points to a Hinduism that entails some sort of pluralism. And so obviously the title of your book is Hindu Pluralism. So can you connect the dots for readers in terms of where this idea and this problematism of sectarianism um, leads you to talk about Hindu pluralism in your book? Well, yes, that's an important point. Uh, and I do have some reservations about the term unity or the unification of Hinduism uh, without that element of diversity or pluralism being accounted for historically. And how that plays out historically actually differs significantly from how it plays out in the modern world. Uh, ideas, for example, of uh, Gandhian tolerance that uh, tries to incorporate all diversity within a singular kind of unifying umbrella. But actually in the, in the past, uh, when Shaivism and Vaishnavism first start to represent themselves as members of this unified uh, religion that we now call Hinduism, uh, what's stressed is not so much the unity, but the diversity or the distinction between those communities. Uh, for example, Shaivas, especially starting around the 12th or 13th century or so, you know, I happen to agree uh, with Andrew Nicholson's periodization, uh, although uh, I would make certain arguments differently for why that is the case. Uh, so for Shaivas, for example, uh, when they start to represent themselves as members of this overarching unity, they do so by arguing that the true essence of the Vedas is not tolerance, not unity, but the fact that the Vedas really mean Shiva is the ultimate God and not Vishnu, and therefore that Shaiva practice and religiosity is superior over other forms of what we now call Hinduism. Uh, and so that argument uh, is something that might seem problematic or uh, something that modern individuals, uh, whether in India or elsewhere, might want to distance themselves from the idea that one religion is superior to others. Uh, that might seem at odds with our typical idea of what pluralism is. And so one thing that I'm trying to do in this work is to, uh, to do a sort of an experiment of uh, reframing what we think of as pluralism, how we might look at that category in a different way uh, by bracketing out temporarily some of the assumptions uh, of pluralism is founded on a Western modern vision of civil society. Uh, and on the other hand, what we see developing in the material I've looked at in South India in the early modern centuries is a model of pluralism founded on diversity uh, of ideas of publicity, the diversity of ways of embodying religious identity and of performing that identity in space. So I've tried to describe that kind of pluralism. Uh, it's really a very different model that, that spatializes and enacts and performs difference in a way that doesn't necessarily entail conflict or exclusion, although there are points of controversy and contention to be sure, uh, but it's uh, a model of performing that difference and publicizing that difference in a way that creates a space for, for multiple publics that are not necessarily in conflict with each other.
Mm -hmm. There's so very much in what you said. So I'll try to dig in with that rich material and reframe a little bit of it or revisit a little bit of it. So what would you say is essentially the distinction between the Hindu pluralism um, of the early modern period uh, that you talk about in your book and what we think of as religious pluralism in the modern global village? Right. Well, there's a lot that could be said there. Uh, and uh, you know, within the scope of my book, I haven't uh, had uh, the chance to really address you know, how ideas of pluralism uh, that we find in early modern South India might be applied to or studied in the context of the modern world. That's certainly a worthy project. Uh, but what I do want to highlight uh, is that you know, when we consider issues of pluralism in a comparative perspective, in the non-Western world especially, uh, it can be very helpful to bracket out certain Western assumptions, at least temporarily, that would privilege the Western model of civil society as the only possible way to manage and negotiate difference. There may very well be other such models that have developed in other parts of the world, and that would be a, a very viable, very worthwhile project for future study, mm -hmm. is to look at how, for example, the early modern Hindu model in South India differs from Western normative assumptions and how other ideas of pluralism might similarly provide alternate models. I had a, I had a similar, just short, uh, small footnote to our conversation. I had a similar uh, project in my master's some time ago uh, that ended up in a, in a jar, a journal of the American Academy of Religion publication, where I looked at just war criteria as evolved from the West that we see in the ancient Indian epic Ramayana. And also it was, I found it difficult to, to distinct, to uh, decide whether it was the Ramayana informing just war or just war criteria informing our view of the Ramayana. So I think it's similar with, with uh, pluralism that, you know, to what extent do we see our notions of pluralism in early modern South India and maybe more powerfully, um, to what extent can our notions be bolstered and richer embellished by what we see in this epoch, in this space. There's one um, concept that I want to unpack because I suspect many of our readers may know it, not our readers, <laughs> many of our listeners may be aware of it, but I think it's worth revisiting here, this idea of henotheism. Um, so we know that there's monotheism, we know there's polytheism, and then in the Indic world, there is this fascinating idea that um, you may exalt one God above all other gods without precluding the existence of other gods. Do you see this as crucial to your argument or fitting into your research or your thinking in some way? Yeah, honestly, I'm not so sure I buy that model. Right, I've, Tell uh, us more. I love, sorry, love that. Love that. A, the term henotheism, of course, is one that I encountered in my early study of Hinduism. But you know, after looking at the history of Shaivism and Vaishnavism, you know, my feeling is that the category really doesn't quite fit with the evidence because it presumes that that sort of verminical unity has always existed in just the same way. And that certain Shaiva and Vaishnava communities were only just variations and reframings of that unity that has always permeated all of those communities uh, from early Vedic times onward. You know, so that assumption is quite problematic. And uh, I would tend to see instead uh, many early Shaiva and Vaishnava communities as functioning, you know, quite autonomously from Vedic Brahminical practice. Uh, their forms of sociality were in many cases quite different. Their beliefs and practices were often quite different. And the fact that they elevated Shiva or Vishnu to the status of a supreme deity 
wasn't necessarily made originally as a move within this broader framework of Brahminism. So you would see them as more self-contained religion in and of themselves, rather than a sect of a larger Brahmanical Orthodox religion? I've suggested that one could make that argument. You know, I don't really have a horse in the race as to whether we should call Shaivism a separate religion or not. Hmm. But there is uh, an argument that could be made. One could say that although early Shaivism and Vaishnavism, uh, Shaivism say uh, the model of the, the tantric systems that uh, are generally referred to as the mantra margas, Alexis Anderson and others have looked into in quite a bit of detail. Uh, these communities, you know, while they draw on certain inspirations from the Vedic or Brahminical tradition, have diverged from them so substantially you know, that key assumptions about what it is to be a religious person or how one achieves liberation or what one should do as a religious person vary so substantially that you could call that a different religion. If one's going to call, say, Buddhism or Jainism in the early period a different religion, you could make a similar argument about yeah. Shaivism or Vaishnavism. And uh, full disclosure, I, I think of, obviously, there's, there's great value in modern times to think of Hinduism as a world religion, as a tradition, particularly insofar as the fact that millions of Hindus identify as Hindus, as you astutely point out earlier on. Having said that, historically, we know the term comes out of British colonial times. Um, and that really, it is this umbrella of various religious, uh, various expressions of religiosity that were not Christian, Jewish, Muslim, or Sikh at the time. And so I really do think of Hinduism as this, 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 this um, umbrella term for various religious traditions. And so, so what you say does resonate. Now, if one were to read your book, which I'm sure many of our listeners have or certainly will, what would you say is the most crucial takeaway point you'd hope that they have, or the, the, the central pillar in that temple, so to speak? Well, that really depends on the reader. I don't have one single message you know, that I'm hoping to convey you know, mm. precisely. Um, the project originated as a micro-historical study of a particular Sakarian community, and that's the Smarta Shaiva or Tamil Brahmin community uh, of South India, the Tamil region. And so for some readers, that particular history might be the takeaway point. Uh, there's quite a lot uh, of work that I've tried to do in, uh, in revisiting uh, aspects of what happened historically during that time period. And for others, uh, the takeaway point might be, uh, for scholars, it might be in terms of how we historicize and periodize the development of Hinduism as we understand it now how we fit these categories, Shaivism, Vaishnavism, sectarianism, into the narrative that we tell in the classroom and in our scholarship. Or for other readers, uh, for a more general public or for interested Hindu readers, you know, the takeaway point might be uh, a new look at diversity within the tradition. Uh, that is, yeah, a look that, that's intended to be you know, respectful and inclusive in a certain way in terms of highlighting just how much diversity there was on the ground in Hindu communities in the pre-colonial past, uh, how that diversity has been you know, modified and confronted in the colonial process. Mm. But at the same time, how that idea of diversity and pluralism differs quite a bit from modern ideas that again, we get through the Gandhi and others who would see unity as kind of encompassing 
or erasing those differences, which, you know, in the early modern period were actually quite significant, sometimes very contentious differences mm-hmm. that, that separated people in real ways. And you've mentioned um, Gandhi twice now, so I'd love for you to share where you think, you know, share in a nutshell where you think um, the research that you present, your findings, um, enrich, challenge, question, you know, um, um, stand up against Gandhi's um, presentation of Hinduism. And just to give you um, a sense, I also want to talk about a certain Swami Vivekananda after we talk about Gandhi. So maybe we'll start with Gandhi. Certainly. Well, what these figures, Gandhi and uh, Vivekananda, are you know, simply the, the best known representatives of this viewpoint, which is just fairly common, I think, in the 20th century and in the modern world. Uh, the idea that Hinduism uh, is a religion of tolerance. You know, this, uh, this argument has been developed in a lot more uh, rich detail in Cassie Adcock's recent book, uh, which also is a, a fantastic read. Uh, but the idea is uh, here that Hinduism is by nature, by essence, a religion of inclusion and tolerance, uh, and one that encompasses all differences and encompasses them in a way that, for example, other religions in India, such as South Indian Christianity or any other, might be simply viewed as a variant of an essential Hinduism that's cultural and not religious. I also, my view, my, my goal here is not to challenge any one person or any community's religious view. You know, people have the right in the modern world to, uh, to envision the world, to express their religious identity as they best see fit. Uh, but from a historical perspective, my goal is to emphasize that that is not precisely the idea of pluralism that we see taking place in early modern South India. There are a number of fundamental differences there. Uh, in particular, I've tried to emphasize that concept uh, through the use of theories of publicity that emphasize multiple public spheres corresponding to separate religious sectarian communities in a way that people embody their identity and move around in public space in a way that it's not necessarily intended to unify them with others uh, in their neighborhood, but to distinguish them, to mark them as members of particular communities and identities. So would you say then that the universalization uh, that you, that one could easily characterize Gandhi with or Vivekananda with, that this is only possible post the colonial encounter and this idea of a Hinduism to universalize? Uh, well, I, I do think so. I do think so, although I haven't pursue that question in significant detail in my book, but, but I hope to show that uh, in the passage that I cite from Vivekananda, what of the rhetoric that he's drawing on is very much in dialogue with what we see articulated by Monia Williams and other British Orientalists of the colonial period. You know, the idea that sectarianism, that the worship of Shiva or Vishnu is not a fundamental part of the history of the Hindu religion, but is a problematic a protest or breakaway movement from what the so-called real Hinduism is. It is a singular verminical orthodoxy. Uh, so my goal is really just to highlight how that doesn't fit the picture historically. And although I haven't attempted to do this myself, it's certainly very possible uh, to do a more constructive project by looking at what pluralism really looked like in the pre-colonial period and considering how does that differ from what's happening uh, in religious conflict in the modern world, and how might we bring these two uh, these two models into dialogue? 
And how have the two models, the colonial model and the pre-colonial model, intersected in the modern world in ways that might not be so productive? Mm. That's a fascinating, fascinating series of questions. Is of course, you know, um, most of our listeners, like most human beings, are interested in in in, in themselves and their lives and, and how they can enrich their view of the world. Um, there's so many points uh, that we can. There's so many avenues we can take um, from here. Now. In the conclusion of your book, you highlight Vivekananda in particular and the way in which he universalizes Hinduism. Now, Vivekananda, as most of our listeners probably know, was crucial insofar as being officially or unofficially really the first spokesperson on behalf of quote-unquote Hinduism at the Parliament of World Religions in 1893. Um, As an interesting aside, the Parliament is coming to Toronto later this year, and I'll have the distinct pleasure of uh, presenting and participating in this. So that should be lots of fun. Now, now let's zoom in on Vivekananda as a figure who really was the face of Hinduism in his generation and the face of bringing it into global religion discourse through this parliament in Chicago. Is his vision, do you think, compatible or incompatible fundamentally with your findings of the texture of Hinduism in in early pre-modern South India? Well, I hate to universalize about uh, all of Vivekananda's thoughts simply on the basis of that one passage. Uh, I do want to point out that there there are some points of contrast that we can draw. There are others who have looked at, at Vivekananda's thought in quite a bit more detail. So, so there is more that could be said with a more fine-grained analysis of exactly what's going on in Vivekananda's time uh, and what the, um, what the central questions are in that discourse, what the debates are. And it's not, his worldview is not a monolith any more than early Hinduism was. So, mm. so I'd say it's quite complex, but I do want to highlight, highlight that one point of contrast, and it's the contrast between uh, ideas of sectarianism as they are seen in the post-colonial period and how Shaiva and Vaishnava identities were negotiated, embodied, and experienced prior to British colonialism. Is there, I do have a few more questions um, before we bring our, our, um, our conversation to a close. Is there a particular um, area of the book that you wish I had asked about or you'd like our readers to dig into? Or is there a particular uh, point you'd like to make? Uh, well, um, I can say just a little bit uh, in the context about, uh, you know, how I got to where I ended up in writing this work, uh, because there are a number of different layers here, in fact. And as it turns out, I didn't really set out originally to write a book about Hindu sectarianism or Hindu pluralism, uh, but I arrived there by a a much more circuitous route. So I started out, you know, in fact, interested in something very different. I was interested in a particular historical problem. what was going on in the religious worldview of 17th century South India in the Tamil region. I became interested in that subject uh, through the lens of a particular poet uh, by name of uh, Nilakanta Dikshita, uh, who was the poet laureate uh, of the court of Dirumalanayaka in South India in the 17th century in Madurai. Uh, and it turns out Nilakanta Dikshita was represented uh, by most of scholarship before that point as an entirely secular 
courtly poet. He's, uh, in fact, known very rightly so as one of the most brilliant poets of his generation. Uh, but through my research at the time, I discovered, in fact, that Nilakanta did quite a lot more you know, with his intellectual work than simply courtly poetry. He was also a very active Shaiva public theologian. And I decided to go down this route in pursuing these questions when, when I discovered that he had composed uh, a previously, you know, generally unstudied and unpublished work uh, of Shakta Tantra, that's uh, Tantra, the worship of the goddess, Lalita Tripurasundari, and that's the uh, Sri Vidya tradition. Uh, so, so my questions were, you know, what prompted him to write this work and how can we better understand his engagement with the worldview of 17th century Tamil Nadu? Hmm. So, so starting with that question, that led me to you know, consider in a, a broader perspective, whether he was unique in making those moves or whether there was something you know, more systematic going on in terms of religious change, the origin of a new religious community, something we would generally now call a sectarian community. And so I first envisioned the project as a whole then as a study of the origins uh, of what we now look at as the Smarta Shaiva community, certain key aspects of that religious identity, including, for example, the worshiping of a particular religious lineage, the Shankaracharya preceptors, and they're best known as being based in Sringeri and Kanchipuram today, and also uh, the involvement with many members of his community with Sri Vidya ritual practice. Mm. Now, you make a fascinating uh, comparison, rather a comment on the comparison between uh, Nilekanta Dikshita and uh, Voltaire. And I think mm. our, <laughs> our listeners would be fascinated to hear you say in your own terms uh, more about that, that comparison. Oh, sure. Well, that, that comparison was meant to be provocative. That is, uh, it's a comparison I don't agree with. Uh, and so I make the comparison uh, to highlight how you know, narratives about the identity of these intellectual figures may be problematic. If we uh, engage in that thought experiment of, of viewing Nilakanta as a secular courtly poet who is best known for writing uh, you know, biting satirical commentary about the religious uh, communities in his day, if we, uh, if we take that model, then you know, we're going to miss out on what he was actually doing in terms of uh, actively writing works of Shaiva and Shakta public theology. Hmm. And so you used a word that um, is commonly used, and, and I wonder if, how, to what extent is a fitting word, um, secular courtly poetry. You know, I, I once had a mind-blowing conversation years ago uh, in grad school about <laughs> the extent to which the div divide between sacred and secular exists in South Asian religion, mm. uh, as, at least historically. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, well, uh, I quite agree with that. You know, the term itself is uh, one that I don't agree with here. I'm using it uh, in, uh, I guess, sort of an ironic sense in the fact that it's, uh, it's a model that's been put forward for what a court poet is, someone who is, uh, you know, essentially not involved, at least in his professional activities in religion in any way. And that is a problematic assumption. You know, it's one that, uh, in truth, uh, has been sometimes uh, associated with uh, my mentor, Sheldon Pollock. Uh, but in general, uh, I think that uh, that doesn't fully capture what's going on on the ground with uh, individual poets who are writing in particular worldviews. And that's certainly the case for Nila Kandidikshita, uh, who had quite a number of religious or theological projects that he didn't see as contradictory with his poetry. 
we could easily fill an afternoon with chatting about the ideas in your book. However, I hope that we've given the readers a sufficient taste to either reread it or dive into it if they haven't already picked it up. Um, now, let me ask you, um, what are you working on now? That's a, that's a great question. I'm continuing uh, a number of my interests. Uh, in my first book, in Shaivism in South India and in the origin and development of religious communities by looking at the history of the Vira Shaiva or Lingayat religion in South India. Um, this is a, a topic that's actually been in the news quite a bit in Karnataka right now. Uh, the Vira Shaiva or Lingayat tradition uh, has been generally viewed as uh, a community that belongs to Karnataka, the Kannada language. Uh, right now, uh, some members of the Lingayat community have been advocating uh, to represent uh, that community uh, to gain official recognition as an independent minority religion as distinct from Hinduism. Uh, so my questions are historical, however. I'm not looking at the present debate, but I'm looking at uh, some new perspectives on how the tradition developed over time and how its early history engages with earlier models of the transregional and Sanskritic Shaivism. Now, in general, Vira Shaivism or Lingayatism, uh, I use both because uh, there is quite a bit of debate right now about which term is correct, so I'm using both for the moment right now. Yeah. Uh, this community is generally represented as a crucial component of the Bhakti movement of Hinduism as a distinctively devotional religion. Uh, and that involves, in some perspectives, uh, you know, an allegiance to the vernacular specifically, uh, to the use of Kannada and other vernacular languages for the vachanas, uh, that is uh, the statements of poet saints uh, and other religious poetry and narrative. Uh, and some people view traditions like Vita Shaivism as bhakti movements as necessarily being set in contrast or in opposition to a model of Brahminical orthodoxy, uh, to ritualism, uh, and to the Sanskrit language. So those are some assumptions that I want to complicate by looking at the early history of Vira Shaivism or Lingayatism in, say, around the 12th or 13th century, uh, by looking at how a body of Sanskrit discourse emerges at that period in dialogue with various South Indian vernaculars that draws actively on the heritage of earlier models of agamic, tantric, or lay devotional Shaivism. And then I continue the analysis to look at how those approaches to Vira Shaivism change during the Vijayanagar period, so say up to the 16th or 17th centuries. Sounds like a fascinating project. Now, you'll have to keep me posted on publication because we may just have you back when you publish that book. I think we have taken up enough of your time for now. This is um, our New Books interview for the Hindu Studies channel with Dr. Elaine M. Fisher from Stanford University on her book, Hindu Pluralism, Religion and the Public Sphere in Early Modern South India. It has been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Raj.